Latino Stories, Historias Latinas, es un podcast que nace del proyecto de narrativas orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio, con entrevistas en español, inglés, and Spanglish. Listening to episode one of Immigration Policies in the Education System. Dreamers, that is what the undocumented youth brought as children are dubbed as. Dreamers, those who make up approximately 5% of the labor force are dubbed as. They are dubbed as dreamers because even though they are given the constitutional right to public education and are capable to achieve and excel in fields such as their counterparts who hold citizenship, there are limitations implemented once they start to transition into adulthood as they lack proper documentation to legally work and or vote. An estimated 11 million undocumented immigrants reside in the United States. From those 11 million, 1.7 million are estimated to be eligible for DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, enacted by President Obama through executive action in 2012. Majority of them are from Mexico. What we know now as DACA exists, there were various other policies presented in Congress in hopes to provide a path for citizenship for children brought to the U.S. who have grown within the United States education system. DACA, while it is the first large-scale policy for undocumented youth to offer temporary relief from deportation, is still up in a limbo as of 2023. While it does offer some sort of relief, it still can have a negative impact on the social mobility of undocumented students through their educational attainment. If you were asked, what can you tell me about policies regarding immigration and how they affect students in school and in the workforce, how would you answer? When it comes to elections, whether it be at a state or national level, immigration is brought up as a topic of discussion for candidates to use as a podium for their campaigns. While it is consistently brought up, there has been no change since the 2012 executive action for DACA, and many remain uninformed in regards to how these policies have an effect on students who are having to navigate the educational system as first generation and with little to no guidance. While there are professors and mentors who are willing to learn, it is important to note that students' families play a pivotal role in their education as they contribute a form of cultural capital neglect neglected by outsiders. It is also important to take into consideration that immigration is not a new issue, but rather one that has always been present and should by now have been addressed more appropriately by those who call themselves politicians. My name is Lidia Isabel Flores Bandera. I was born in Veracruz, Mexico, but was raised in Texas. I am currently a recipient of DACA and study at Texas A&M University, San Antonio, a Hispanic-serving institution. Growing up, sharing my status was not something I should have been doing as it would be considered unsafe for me. Though obtaining DACA has allowed me to feel more secure in my identity and be willing to share more about it. In the first episode, we introduced three graduate students from different parts of Mexico who have resided in the United States and have navigated the education system here in the U.S. They share their time from their arrival to the U.S. and the in-between. I was born in Nuevo Laredo, Tamaulipas, Mexico, which is just right on the border between Texas and Tamaulipas. I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and I've lived I've lived here most of my life. So I was born in Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, my parents are from Sinaloa. I grew up in Ohio, um, in the capital, Columbus. Menos de dos años, cuando dejé Mexico, y ya tengo 23 años en los Estados Unidos. And my ancestors are all 
what now is known as Mexican. So, crecí nací en Monclova, Coahuila, um, México. Ahí, este, pues nací. Y los seis años, este, me emigré a los Estados Unidos. He estado en San Antonio desde los seis años. Y yo ahorita tengo 23. All three narrators, when arriving in the U.S., share their experience in adjusting to a new culture and language through their school years. Narrator one shares his experience from his late elementary years and how teachers had an impact on him, including how he was able to learn to speak English fluently. Yeah, no, I, I didn't know any English. I mean, growing up right on the border, I, I was exposed to American culture, but I, I mean, I only knew like the basic English words, so... Yeah, that, that, that first year, it, it was something. <laughs> I, I didn't know English. But I did go to a elementary school that had like a dual program. So they had classes in Spanish and in English. So for the first two years, so third and fourth, actually technically all three years, I was in uh, English's dual language. But my fifth grade teacher, I didn't like her back then because... She was like very strict in the sense, like even though it was a Spanish speaking class, she wanted us to speak in English because she was like, "You guys have to learn English." So we were like, we were all annoyed with her. I didn't, I didn't like her because like I want to keep speaking Spanish, but ultimately it ended up helping me being forced to speak English because I think by by the end of sixth grade. I was already out of the program. Narrator 2 shares her experience with learning English and her education before college. Well, I definitely have an advantage there. Um, but of course, the disadvantage that my parents didn't speak English. So when I, as the oldest, start to to learn and go to school, I had to experience, like, and still do, like, uh, this understanding of a different world that my parents and my other family members don't live in or don't are not invited to because they don't know the language so yes there is like obviously a, a heads a head start when you learn from a younger asia language so yeah i guess that's that's the experience i had it was also i also like i don't know how other states do it but because my parents didn't uh, speak english English, I from when I was in kindergarten all the way till fifth grade, I was like in ESL. And um, yeah, so I was also in like ESL. So even like that, like that separation of like, okay, you need to learn more English. And here is the group of people you're gonna learn English with. So ESL, one of one of the things is if anybody in the household doesn't speak English you are required to take a test, um, whatever grade level you enter, like the educational system. And then you're supposed to learn English in all of the five facets, um, reading, listening, speaking, writing. There's another one I always forget, but you're supposed to like learn all of that. And then every single year you get like a test, something like with a O, I don't remember the name. And you're supposed to, the test is like your comprehension of the language. Oh, so yeah. So your parents don't speak English. And then what Dr. Um, Babel, one of um, Elena's colleagues, um, also says that it's like anybody who doesn't speak English, even if the primary language spoken in the household is English, if that other another parent knows another language, 
they're also required to take like a test and yeah it's like crazy really um and almost discrimination if you think about it so you can test out or like what i did this is me and i should have known i was a badass from then i when i was going from fourth to fifth grade i told and had the autonomy to tell one of my um, teachers who was like an ESL teacher that I no longer wanted to be an ESL. I was excelling in all of my classes and I had been for years and I no longer wanted to be an ESL because I felt that it hindered my educational opportunities and time. Because when you take you out ESL, you're taking time out of the day. So uh, quote unquote, I never tested out, but I took self-autonomy and said, nope, I don't want to be in this program. So, and my parents said, we, we agree. So they took me out of ESL. Narrator 3 shares her experience upon arriving and having to assimilate into the new culture. I was in first grade. We did have ESL, but did I remember the teacher was a little bit harsh with me? I don't know if it was because I was one of the only ones that spoke like fluent Spanish, not English. And I guess she just expected a lot from me. But I did feel that besides having the program of ESL, like it was, I guess, like mandatory for me to learn it like fast, quick. And there was times that I couldn't do my homework and she would just get mad at me, scream at me. But I wouldn't even understand what she was saying because it was in English. Um, Her patience was a little bit off off the note but I mean I guess it helped me <laughs> así aprendí a lo a la a la fuerza mm-hmm. eso sí también en mi casa like no podía yo hablar el inglés puro español puro español um, creo también por el respeto a mis a mi mamá este a mi familia por si hablaba mal de ella o, o algo este pero ya yeah, um, todo en la casa español, en la escuela inglés o tratar de hablar el inglés pero sí había un programa me ayudó poquito bueno, me ayudó en sí porque ya ahorita sé el inglés bien Having to assimilate into a new culture and language is not always something easy and fast to do and takes time. At times, this alongside dealing with one's status can take a toll on one's mental health. No sabía nada de la cultura, nada del idioma. Este sí se me hizo un poquito difícil. Sí, este batallé, sí lloré un poco este, en el proceso. Um, pero al momento de que estuve aquí en San Antonio, ya con tiempo este, empecé a agarrar la onda del... Yeah, I mean... Not to kind of like make a lot of situation, but I kind of like when uh, <laughs> I left, like looking back, I, I kind of went like emo mode. I, I grabbed my hair. I stopped giving a crap. I stopped turning assignments. I was just like, whatever, dude, I don't care anymore. And like I, I was back then, like Trump had just become president, you know, all that stuff that he said. I was like, what's the point? All that hard work, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school. What's it all for if I can't go to college? It wasn't the best of places, you know, like mentally. Because it affects more than just, oh, I'm not going to college, or at least I thought it wasn't. It you know, affects everything else. You just kind of start feeling apathy towards stuff. Just not caring about whatever goes on. But when my counselor pulled me in and told me, like, hey, you can still go to college, that was kind of like the moment that, oh, okay. All right, like, there's still still hope right so i that's when i got i guess you could say back on track and that's there the rest is history yeah 
Each narrator's families contributed to them pursuing their higher education, therefore rejecting the negative comments and myths that Latino or Hispanic parents do not care about their children's education. The following narrators include their descriptions as to how their parents contributed. So they couldn't really like support me in the ways that probably other students had, but they did support like at least like, you know, keep going. You can do it kind of mentality um as far as like doing that and like for me it's like I despite being undocumented I come from a very privileged background um my dad went to college so, so even though he couldn't like work in the U.S. like for his profession I there was also this like this understanding that higher higher education was important and going to school and being a good student was important and which was also difficult because my my dad was removed from the U.S. when I was younger. So the person that had, quote unquote, experienced something maybe in Mexico was not like readily accessible. And my mom, who didn't go to college, well, she didn't really go to school, period, per se, um, was there. So she didn't really have also time to like support my my needs. But I will say that as an activist, my my mom was also very heavily involved in my my work. She didn't understand what I was doing, and she didn't understand why we were doing what we were doing, honestly speaking. And she probably still doesn't understand like the work that I still continue to do outside of academia. But she um, was always involved in our fundraisers. She was also involved in like um, talking to people and like being there in the way that she could, in the capacity that she could. So. That was also very, very helpful. And I I know that really helped my journey because I saw at firsthand that similar students just didn't have that experience, that their parents were not supportive of their dreams and that, and like the differences ends in the result of why I have college degrees and why some of those students didn't finish or gave, or had to turn to other alternatives. Uh, a big, yeah, big support system, even if, if on the other hand, like she, she has always put a lot of weight on my shoulders. Um, she was my, my huge, huge support aside from my boyfriend. Um, whenever I, I couldn't like pass a class or whenever I was stuck, I'll just go to her and I'll just cry and cry and just tell her, I don't understand. I don't know what's going on. The material is too hard. It's just, it's heavy, and she has um, a psychology degree in Mexico, completely different than the United States. I don't know if this was support or if she was, like, hurting me when she would tell me this, pero me decía, si yo lo puedo hacer, tú también puedes. Yeah, she would tell me, okay, no pasa nada, like, you can do it. Y sí me ayudaba, pero a la misma vez yo pensaba, pues, no me entiende, no me entiende. En, en fin, like, sí me, sí me ayudó mucho. You know, the, the comfort of, of your mom's advice, it was, it was always um, a warm feeling, you know. Um, she was a, ma a major support system throughout my career, through, through life, just in general, you know, when I... When I crossed the stage, I told her, this is for you. You know, you, we crossed the border and it was, it was, it was hard y todo, pero gracias porque vinimos a un país internet, nada y como quiera me lo hice todo y 
fue, ella para mí siempre ha sido, you know, pues, my support system. And aunque a veces, you know, las mamás dicen sus verdades y dicen, you know, lo que duele. Y a veces, pues, no estás esperando que te digan eso. Por eso a veces no nos abrimos por completo. Me acuerdo que siempre que me sentía, like, overwhelmed, decía, I need to talk to you, but don't tell me anything. <laughs> I just need a vent to you. She'll be like, oh, my God, okay. Talk to me. Tell me what happened. Oh, yes, definitely. I would have not done any of this without their support. Um, my dad, you know, he did get his degree in Mexico, and he does have a job here. So, like, we were never rich, right? But money, it was something, you know, that, that was like, how do you say, like, it didn't grow on trees, right, for us. Like, we still had to, you know, budget, but we were, we were okay. Um, my mom, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom. She always, you know, she took care of me and my sister, made sure, you know, just that the home, you know, the place that we lived was a place that we could feel at home, right? And, you know, between the two of them, you know, they helped. They basically allowed me and my sister to just focus on our education growing up. We really have that many responsibilities. Like, yeah, I would go and help my dad with work, like any, any Mexican kid probably does. I guess, like, compared to typical American, I guess I didn't have as many responsibilities, which in turn, I was able to focus more on school. I could spend more time studying. Financially, like, I was able to pay my education through scholarships right so like that was that was a thing like when i was going to college like i didn't want my parents to pay for stuff because yeah i know they they would have tried their best but i knew like ultimately they're, you know, they were gonna fall short like, you don't have that kind of money and i already knew that they did a lot just to uh, just to give me that opportunity to go to college so i didn't want to burden them more right i guess through college through high school just throughout my whole life yeah that's how they've been able to support me pursuing higher education as undocumented requires for additional paperwork such as an affidavit to be filled out in order to not be considered an international student even though most of the students have resided in the u.s longer than they have in their native countries for context through high school I always had the idea that i was going to go to college right and you know i was set on that kept up my grades and everything But my senior year happened to be the year that Donald Trump got elected. If I remember correctly, the election took place like November of like 2016, and which is around the time that you know we started applying for colleges. And I just remember just feeling hopeless, like, oh, well, what was it all for? Because I mean, back then, all that stuff that he said that he was going to do, and it just. I mean, my mind went to a dark place. I was just like, what was it all point? What was like, I, I gave up on going to college. Um, and, and I realized uh, this probably, you know, I, I realized the, like, the place of privilege that this is coming from, but like, I, because of my grades, I was able to rank in the top 10 of my class. My school, they had a college advisor for everyone, right? But she kept reaching out to me because I was the only one in my grade in the top 10 that had not applied to school yet. And so she was like, all right, what's going on? Like, you obviously, you're meant to go to college. So why haven't you? And this, mind you, this is, this is already like April. And so she had like tried to set up a meeting with me a couple of times. And I was like, whatever, I don't care. Like I told you, I had 
giving up completely and going to college. Until one day, she literally just walked into my class. I asked the teacher, can I borrow Luis for, for the rest of the period? And I was like, because at that point, I was like, I don't want to tell anyone about my situation. Like, they don't need to know that, whatever, just whatever. And so she pulled me down and she took me to her office. It's like, all right, I need to be honest with me. Why haven't you applied? You're the only one that hasn't. And I, and that's when I told her about my status. And she was like, well, just because you know, you're, you're undocumented doesn't mean you can't go to college. And at that point, I was like, you can't go to college as an undocumented student? Because I didn't know that. Obviously, by then, I mean, it was already like April. So a lot of deadlines already passed, a lot of scholarships, a lot of you know, universities. So I was like, I already missed out on a lot of opportunities. So she was she, she, so she suggested like, hey, why didn't you start off at community college? That way you can you know, start getting your higher education and then eventually you can go to university. And well, that's eventually how I ended up in college. So yeah, I went to San Antonio College after high school, did my two years there, got the dream.us scholarship. Back then, uh, what I wanted to pursue was engineering. And it just so happened that the only university in the state of Texas that I could go to, because I know UTEP was an option, but obviously can't go there. Uh, the only other option was University of Houston. So I went there for a year before I transferred out of there, went to Tamusa for my last two years. Alumni from Tamusa, Texas A&M University, San Antonio. I um, graduated with a degree of biology and a minor in Spanish. Equities, when I started to go to college, I um, graduated as the salutatorian of my graduating class. I got into a number of colleges and I was classified as an international student. So I wasn't, a, I wasn't um, permitted to even like apply to like these scholarships that I would normally be eligible for because of my academic record. My sister, on the other hand, um, got a full ride to college with more or less the same credentials. And it was a very, I guess, like real experience of like, just what does like a, a single piece of paper mean in like, uh, in the system. Ohio is a different kind of atmosphere and it still is. There is a lot of confusion and there still is a lot of confusion um, for people in the community and other people in general. Um, part of my work has been the fact that Regardless of what people think, people know very little about immigration and they know even less about, about undocumented people. So I never felt um, I went to I went to school through 20, uh, I guess, 2000 and maybe three or four till 2017 for grade school. So this is a completely different time. I don't know if that has changed in the post-Trump era, but what I can tell you is that um when I applied to college in 2016, there was a lot of, for like all kinds of reason, a lot of like uncertainty and a lot of like, like I said, confusion and people, I hope they know now how to talk to students, didn't really know. And like, I remember like talking, I didn't even talk to my school counselor. They like all like said, she's undocumented, like one of the best students at our school. Like it was like a weird, um, outing essentially and they didn't they even with all of that they didn't really know what to do um so i just applied to some schools my school um 
district because um, since it is the largest school district and we're from the city, we're inner city, um, we all got basically three free waivers to apply to any school we wanted to. And either way that, yeah, so it wasn't like a thing. And I had applied to other programs that because of like being like diverse, you can get a fee waiver and like the classification of international student that is also was a very weird space um, because in that era, like um, when I was accepted in 2017, that era was also people didn't know what to do and they still don't know what to do. Um, and a lot of universities across Ohio, especially like some smaller ones that just don't have that that mass population because there just isn't like at all, to be honest, um, like numbers wise. So like in all the all the classes, well, in all the colleges I apply to public and private, I mean, private doesn't really matter, but like in public um, after the fact, I had to submit like documentation, but like my university part of the change that I I helped to push was to just add a literally like a button to say DACA or I don't know if they added undocumented to that button but it was added um to the application like the common app after college or university each narrator continued on to obtain career by the time I transferred to Tamusa I wasn't looking into engineering uh if there's one thing that I learned at U of H was that engineering just wasn't it for me. And maybe I'm going to get too technical here, but I just felt like engineering was, you learn a lot of good stuff there, but I just feel like stuff, like it's stuff that you don't really get to apply like on a day-to-day basis. And then just on top of that, I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, but getting an engineering job or engineering contracting, if I'm documented, it's kind of difficult. Like you don't really hear of, I mean, I know engineering contractors, but I was like undocumented people being engineering contractors. But I, I don't, personally, I've never heard of it. Maybe there's some out there. And if, and if that's the case, props to them. I know that's hard. While I was there, that's when I kind of like started to figure out like what I really wanted to do. And that was work with computers, right? So like my whole thing was, oh, I want to do electrical engineering because I don't work with like, uh, you know, building computers because that's something I had done in the past. That just wasn't my passion. I was more into the software side of it. And so when I left U of H, I was like, all right, what what programs does Tamusa have? And did you happen to have the computer information systems uh, degree, which covered the stuff that I wanted to learn? So it worked out perfectly, I guess. I didn't find, I created a space. So um, like I I always tell people ironically that the greatest that President Trump did was to catapult my my activism and my advocacy. So um, uh, because of my connections that I had with working, even like as an 18 year old and before I had connections working with new Americans in Columbus, they somehow talked with each other and by the second week of my freshman year, I publicly um, came out to the university as undocumented and what that meant as Trump was rescinding DACA in 2017. So after that, like, I just got like elevated. Um, one is a, a student activist, one is an undocumented person. And um, so I kind of just got like looped looped in with like um, the Office of Diversity and Inclusion, like ODI. 
those people, people in the multicultural center and things of that nature. So it kind of just became easier. And through my connections um, with some of those administrators in ODI, um, I was introduced to another student that was from Texas, um, actually, that was a grad student. Well, actually, they had just finished their grad um um their grad program in Michigan so our rival um they they came over and we and from his ideas and talking we, he helped me among other students that were kind of getting together um based on previous demands that had existed before I joined the university so um I always say that I built on the work of other people that are never named or just whatnot so we took what the administration was trying to create by themselves, like loosely created a student organization and meshed those together to create um, change and equity. So I found students, they found me, we found each other and we created a space that just did not formally exist in the university. Um, there was actually, we never got it from like people telling us like negative things, but there was fear from other other students that had been doing the work longer. Um, but they, I don't want to say they died out, but they graduated, so we they couldn't tell us what we couldn't do. So it's it's also like that kind of space of like not everybody wants to be formalized, not not everybody wants to be recognized. But uh, at the time for me it was like I. I always tell people, even when I was like 18 and um, was publicly like uh, outing myself or whatever, I was telling people that I, nobody should be going through this alone. And it's my hope that in me saying something and me standing up for what I believe um, should be done at this, one of the largest universities in the country means that we won't be alone and that there will be change. And there was. This segment, we heard from a first-person point of view, the experiences of students within the education system, each student having different experiences varying in what state and district they attended and how they were able to accomplish their goals.